محمد in our deen, there's a lot of guidance and guidelines for every different aspect of our life. Now, this is a statement that all of us know and we hear and we believe, but a lot of us are unable to get that guidance. And one major reason is that a lot of that guidance is contained in hadith. Why? Because Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu was practically guiding the lives of the Sahaba Kaab radiallahu ta'ala anhumul's mind. And they were Sahaba. Now, you know, a person today will say, oh, well, they were all from the Arabian Peninsula. But in reality, the Sahaba had two major variations amongst themselves. Uh, what I mean to say is that there were two criteria in which the Sahaba represented such different varied backgrounds that if and when rather Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu guided all of them, that would suffice as a model of guidance for all of humanity. And the first of those two things was their personality. The Sahaba Karam had the whole range of human personality. And the different ways we can understand this. One way is that according to one hadith, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent 120,000 or 124,000 anbiya to humanity. And Sayyidina according to another historical fact, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had 120,000 sahaba. Now the anbiya collectively represent all the types of personalities of human nature and humanity. So there's no human being who has a personality type or personality characteristic or character trait or inclination or emotion or intuition or anything, except that it would have been a noble, pure, good one, except that it would have been found in any of the anbiya. Just like that, some ulama feel then why is it that Allah Taala gave us these two pieces of information through the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? the number of the Anbiya, that's not information that we know from Quran. That's information we know from the Sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And similarly, the number of Sahaba. So some ulama are of the position that all of the Sahaba collectively are yet another Jama'ah. Like all of the Anbiya were a Jama'ah of humanity, which was a representative sample of all of the personality, characteristic traits, feelings of all of humanity. Just like that, Jama'ah of Sahaba, any all the Sahaba come, radiallahu ta'ala on the collectively represent all of the human personality types. Right? Now, let's, if we were to put this to test, and this is why I was saying that a lot of us don't have this guidance. It says the only way to put this to test and the only way to discover this 
And the only way to realize this and benefit from this is through the hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah and his different way of guiding different Sahaba in different ways in different times, his different ways of teaching and counseling and analogy. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, people have written books on this, and these books are available in English and Urdu and other languages, even other than Arabic, you know, also some as a teacher, also as an educator, the youth of analogies and examples by Sayyidina Rasulullah and our problem is that we don't know hadith or we only know the short hadith and sometimes it's in the longer hadith which is, is you know the depth of the guidance uh, the depth of the Russian the guidance of Sayyidina Rasulullah creating guidance and creating and guiding to paths and guidance to people so this is the first thing. And the second thing is that although, yes, there weren't multiracial, right? There weren't Chinese Sahaba or Latino Sahaba or white Sahaba in that sense, right? There was a very limited uh, racial ethnic sense, which is Arabs and Persians and Africans, uh, by and large, right? Uh, but uh, from... The two things in a human being that are intrinsic, one is the personality, and second is their circumstance. The personality is what's intrinsic to them, internal to them, and the circumstance. And by circumstance, I mean from all types of professions or from all types of socioeconomic class, uh, poor, outwardly, in a worldly sense, poor, like Sayyidina Bilal bin Al-Anhu, outwardly, in a worldly sense, rich, like Sayyidina Uthman al-Ghani, from all types of uh, contexts and backgrounds. And therefore the guidance that Sayyidina Rasulullah has offered Sahabakram is universal. And it's not just universal in the sense that it applies to all of humanity. It's a universal that is sufficient for every single background, culture, ethnicity, race, language, culture, etc. Right? But to get that robust guidance requires a deeper understanding and knowledge and study of hadith. And one aspect of that guidance of the sunnah is called tazkiyah. And you, again, you'll find that today, I mean, you know, as a person who's been student learning and sharing Tuskia with others, it, sometimes it is different. You know, the way you try to help a person out of a particular sin is different sometimes if they're a university student or they're a Dalum graduate or they're South African or they're an American or they're Pakistani. And, but you will find guidance for all of that in the Sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alright? Uh, and there's two aspects to this. One is that there were some general teachings of Tazkiyah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu that were universal. And that are the same for everybody. Irrelevant. There's no different what the person is or what the personality is or what their background is is irrelevant to that teaching. And then there's some teachings of Tazkiyah that you can feel it you get a feel for this in hadith that Nabiya Karim Sosan trained two Sahaba slightly differently through different means but brought them to that same goal of taqwa. So let's look at examples of these two things. 
The first one would be uh, that teaching is universal. And I think the most uh, universal teaching of Tazkir, perhaps, is uh, remembrance of death. What uh, the ulama, they call zikrul mot, to remember death, to be reminded of death, to remind one another of death, to remind yourself of death. And obviously this is something that Allah SWT makes it very clear in Quran, Kullun right? that every single life, every single person, every self will taste death, will experience death, will undergo the process of death. And another place in Quran, Allah SWT says, that no nuts, no person, no self knows what it will commit or earn or perpetrate for itself tomorrow, nor at all does it know even in which piece of earth, on what piece of land it will die, right? So the certainty of death, the imminence of death, and the unknowability of death, that we don't know when we're going to die, we don't know how we're going to die, right? So this is, uh, sorry, this is, we don't know where we're going to die. And then another verse also mentioned how we don't know when we're going to die. That whenever the appointed time comes, and again, nobody will know what that is, but this much we know that a person won't be able to delay that for even a moment, nor can they bring it forward, nor can they die a moment earlier. All right? Now, these were some general teachings in Quran that came about death. All right? And Sayyidina Rasulullah, he then he talked to Sahaba Kram in a very universal way about this universal lesson. So maybe the very first hadith we will mention here is a very well known uh, and often shared hadith, and that is Sayyidina Rasulullah, that okay, be in this world, live in this world, exist exist in this world such that your existence is the existence of a stranger. Exist like a stranger in this world. Or the wayfarer traveler on the path. Now, what does this mean? This is the universe. It doesn't matter. So the Prophet it doesn't matter. Are you poor? Are you rich? Are you happy in the world? Are you sad in the world? It doesn't matter what your relationship with the world is. It doesn't matter to what extent you are content in this world. It doesn't matter if you're happy or suffering. And sometimes, you know, I think sometimes some of us, and I know myself, I've experienced this, sometimes things can be going so well in life that it doesn't mean a person forgets akhirah, but a person can actually be content in their life. And especially a person leading a life on deen, they can actually be happy. And, and, and then you don't feel like a stranger. In fact, you feel very intimate with your life. You're very, very intimate with your schedule of ibadah, your schedule of dars, your schedule of beyond, your tarbiyah, your learning, your teachers, your students, and you're on the circuit and on the cycle. And a person gets very comfortable with that. And a person gets very intimate, intimately near with that. And then that life becomes near and dear to them. And then, that, then what happens is what? Well, they're not doing Amr this hadith. This is a universal teaching required for Tazkiyah. Kun dunya ka annaka gharib. No, 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 no. Exist like a stranger. Don't exist. You have the dream job. Exist like a stranger. You have the perfect family. Exist like a stranger. Everything is going just fine in the world. Exist like a stranger. 
you're succeeding in all of your goals, exist like a stranger. No, you know, if there was a more new person who was listening to me, uh, just wait, because I have to explain what does it mean to exist like a stranger, right? We're not talking about negativity. We're not talking about, oh, you know, this, this is too intense and what's wrong, everything's going well in the person's life. And on top of that, if they have a dini life and they're well settled in being, they're happy in being, why are you saying they should exist like a stranger? Because first, understand, exist like a stranger is a prophetic commandment. It's not some negativity, it's not skepticism, it's not self-hate, it's not pessimism, it's not cynicism, none of them. That's not what it means. I think a lot of people misunderstood that this is meant to be, like I said, a universal teaching of Tazkiyah. And a lot of us, we particularize it. Because this is a big mistake. We particularize it, or, you know, like in the language of the Usuli, that which had Umum, we gave it Tazkiyah. That which was supposed to be general and universal, we apply that one for specific circumstances. For example, be grieve only to the material things in the world, or be grieve only to the sin in the world. No, Allah, the deity of Allah, was teaching us what? Because life itself should appear strange to you when death and akhirah are the ultimate reality. Life itself should appear strange to you when your life is going to be snatched away by the phenomenon called death. And life itself should appear strange to you because it's unreal compared to the ultimate reality of Akhirah. It's all unreal. Even if you're accomplished and achieved and even did, it's all fluff. It's all fluff. Allah Akbar, that you're a stranger. That you're a stranger. Don't be so attached to this life. You know, like when a stranger now, let's now look at this gharib, right? And it is interesting that in our deen, in Arabic language, uh, you know, because not just in the Urdu language, in the Arabic language, one meaning of gharib also means poor. Now, what does it mean and what's the relationship between poor and ghuraba, right? Poor and strangers. So what it means is that you know, obviously, if a person doesn't have money, they're a stranger to money. Money is strange to them. The opulent life is strange to them. The materialistic, luxurious life is strange to them because they're a person who doesn't have means, right? Now, let's just take this concept and instead of money, just think the whole world. Life, everything that's of value in life. Things are of legitimate value. Things being acknowledged as value. It might be spouse, it might be children, it might be Salah, it might be anything. Things that even the deen accepts as value. There has to be a certain level of detachment from it. A certain level of estrangement from it. So a good example of this is Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran, Ya manu, O you who have adopted Imam, La tuzhukum amwalukum wa la auladukum an that do not let your legitimate, now I'm going, to, I'm going to insert some words of commentary into the transition. Do not let even your legitimate, lawfully, justly earned wealth of which you have given bata and sadaqa, even don't let that wealth, and even your pious offspring and loving, doting, loyal ulama offspring, even don't let those children distract you one iota on zikrillahi 
from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because whosoever does that, who allows that to happen, who lets himself become neglectful, negligent, distracted for one iota of the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa perfectly 100% halal, tayyib, well, of the perfectly 100% pious, honorable children. What does Allah Ta'ala say? وَمَنْ يَفْأَلْ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَيْكَ هُمَ Because anybody who does that is in complete loss. What does it mean? Even the noble things in life, the pure things in life, the accomplishments and achievements in life, if we let ourselves get attached to them. So attachment here means neglect to the zikr of Allah SWT. And that's why the Prophet be estranged from the world. Because if you're intimate with the world, you become estranged from Allah Ta'ala. So this was, again, the universal teaching of Tafsir. That there's dunya versus rub. So dunya, then in the Hadith, couldn't be dunya. Dunya doesn't just mean the material world. Dunya means all ghair Allah. Everything other than Allah Ta'ala, you should be estranged to it. Now, why? Because it's only when you're estranged, estranged is the same thing as word, it means to be a stranger to, estranged from all Allah, only then will you be able to be grieved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So that's a certain level of attachment. Now what we learn here is a couple of things. Again, this is true for everyone. It doesn't matter what a person's personality is. This isn't Sufi teaching for people with Sufi personalities or ascetic teachings for people who have ascetic lifestyle. This is a universal tazkiyah from the Quran and Sunnah. All right? Now, what we learn here is two things. Number one, is that there is, even in halal and tayyib dunya, there is one element in that pure, noble, honorable, lawful, sharia-compliant dunya which is dangerous for us. And that is that the dunya is alluring. And somehow it takes more of us than we're supposed to give it. It attracts more of us than we're supposed to give it. And that comes at the expense and cost of our relationship and attraction to Allah and our relationship and attraction to thee. It comes at that cost. So the only way we can make sure we don't pay that cost is by being read, by being estranged, at least maintaining a slight not severe, a slight detachment, a slight distance from the world and our life and our achievements and our position. All right? Now, the problem that happens here then is that some people in Sifawwa, they go to an extreme, right? An extreme would be to abandon the worldly life altogether. <coughs> and this is what Sayyidina Rasulullah told us not to do, La Rahbaniyat Islam, that there is no monasticism in Islam, right? So the Christians... They took this, not all, certain segment of Christians who followed the monastic path or became monks or nuns in convents, took this to this extreme. Now, at the same time, you can respect that emotion, and it's very sincere, and I think it, it shows their love for God, how they would profess it, that they loved Allah so much that they don't want to take a chance. They find that the dunya has a chance, and it can spoil my relationship with Allah, just forget it. I will leave it entirely. I will abandon the dunya entirely. Now, again, deen is what guides us, not our emotions. So there what happened was that that segment of Christianity, they allowed themselves to be guided by their emotions, even if it was a good emotion. 
but it wasn't deen. And so Sayyidina Rasulullah told us that, okay, look, you're not going to be, you can't let yourself be guided by your emotions. Not that, I mean, you know, I don't think many of us feel this way, but what the most happened in most places when you hear the sentence, is like, okay, I'll run away to the cave and I'm going to run away to the monastery or the convent or I'm going to, you know, because spiritual, if there is no Islamic equivalent, then I'm just going to dedicate my life to worship. Your emotions should have said that. That also speaks to the, you know, paucity of our spiritual condition, that we don't have that emotional response when we hear these words. In fact, the Muslim today is much more like, oh boy, okay, now how green am I going to have to get? Because I really, you know, need to be balanced and stay in the world and be worldly. And uh, Muslim get worried when they hear these words. All right? But uh, we are not to be... Um, uh, we are not to be carried away by emotions. Uh, we have to follow deen. All right? We have to follow our deen. Now, what is deen teach us? What's the meaning of the deen? How, how strange am I supposed to be? Right? Can you go back to that ayah? Even things like your legitimate properties, positions, homes, and children. There has to be a certain thing, and what's the marker is your zikr of Allah subhanahu wa You have to always remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and so the marker that was given to us by Allah in Quran is to strange yourself from the world to the extent and for the purpose that the world does not distract you from the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then that, what does that mean? That means however much of the world that you can run along with the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can do that. Now here we flip into a second aspect. Well, before I do that, like I said, there were some people of the soul who went to some extreme, right? And that's not the sunnah teaching of Nabi Yaqareen, sallallahu alayhi You'll find stories of Sufi, even in authentic works of our ulama, on that there was a Sufi and he built his hut, and he didn't make any doors and any windows, but he built a window like really high up, where people used to throw food in for him, and he would just do ibadat all the time. Now, obviously there's not a huge sin that the person did, it's not a, from the Kabbalah, but it's not the correct, best described so no way. And what happened was that a person ended up following emotion rather than following the deen. And this is the real correction that I would think that Tazkia is trying to do in this situation. Sometimes you might emotionally feel like doing something or saying something or thinking something, but you have to check your emotions again. I would add here also, even estrange yourself from your own emotions to the extent that you are now guarded against your emotions making you do anything against me. It's a very delicate thing I'm talking about tonight, right? It's, very, it's not easy. It's very easy for me to describe it and for you to listen to it, but exactly figuring this out in a practical way and practically living a life like the Apostle somebody, that's what he wanted though. When he told us, it's practical teaching. It's not some theoretical concept. Practically live, live this life practically. Right? It takes a lot of thought and a lot of help and a lot of guidance to figure this out. Now, what happens is, I will move to the, what I was saying is a particular aspect. Now, once you take this general universal teaching, 
Now, the particular aspect of tasya and training a person on this path is that, okay, the goal is universal. The method and the path I will adopt to attain that goal, that can differ from person to person. That may differ due to the century we're living in. That could differ due to the culture, society, country we're living in. That could differ due to the personality of the person. And the personality culture could be all due to ethnicity, race, language, anything and everything that you can think of that has brought about this diversity in humanity. All of that has to be factored in the when you apply it practically. So sometimes the teachings and are theoretical. The theoretical teachings are universal. But the practical implementation of it can be particular and specific to a person. And there'll be different ways different people go about becoming Gharib in this world. All right? The key, and going back to the universal, the key thing which has to be universal is what is called about. They must be balanced. Unless you don't want to be too Gharib. You don't want to overdo it like the monks and the nuns did and become too estranged from the world. All right? So going back to that verse I mentioned, the mark is the zikr of Allah Spanota. Now that, you know, when I was thinking... Thinking about this and reflecting on these ayat and hadith, it made me realize on how important zikr is. Because zikr is the pulse. Zikr is the pulse. There's other that it should not distract you from what? Unzikrillahi. Zikr is the pulse by which we will know are we on itadal, are we properly in equilibrium, being reeb and being engaged in the world? Are we overly engaged, less estranged? Are we overly estranged, less engaged? All of that will be determined by the pulse of zikr. And then you can imagine then that this person who's not trying to learn zikr, who's not trying to practice zikr, who's not trying to become a zakr or a zakrah, how in the world can they do this? How in the world can they practically implement? They can recite, they can theoretically understand, they can comment translate, comment, lecture on this ayah and this hadith, but how can they practically implement and live this ayah Quran and live this hadith? That's what's called hidayah, by the way. Hidayah is the practical lived life on this. Hidayah isn't just being able to translate or understand or comment. So how can we get the hidayah from the Quran and Sunnah without this having our pulse on zikr? And I think that's why many of the people of the souls in Tariqah they really felt it important to be trained, particularly in zikr. And really, you will see this in the history of the souls in, in Tariqat. A lot of importance on zikr, regimens in zikr, lessons in zikr, sequences in which those zikr should be performed, amounts of zikr, number of zikr, times of zikr, right? Because it was, these were all, now get back, get, again, back to non-universal. It was different, multiple, not universal. There were multiple, very different ways to be trained in zikr. Because the goal was through any method of training, a person needed to be fine-tuned to zikr. A person needed to be acutely aware of the zikr so that they would be able to fulfill this prophetic command of and fulfill this commandment by Allah that they should not let the strange to those things to an extent that they don't ever get negligent or neglectful or distracted from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right? Now, these different methods of zikr, right? They were some 
method, which took, let's say, more long-term goal. Long-term was that, okay, let's prescribe some tasbihat, and over a number of years, maybe even over a decade or more, the long-term effect of these recited awrad, wazayif, tasbihat, etc., will then bring a person on the zikr of Allah And normally then, these tasbihat or vocal recited, what we call zikr lisani, were things that we recited the whole one's whole life. Because it was their daily recitation, and their regular recitation, and their consistent decoration, recitation, which is what tempered the heart of this person to the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Second, another method of zikr kalbi. And that method of zikr kalbi was different. And particularly I'm talking about now the series of heart remembrances known as maraqaba, which were uh, identified by the Mashaif in Shaban. And that actually was not long-term. That was conceived as a more intensive regimen to attain the goal earlier. But then you would dispense with the method. What was that that a person would do three hours and sometimes more of these long, silent dickers a day? And they wouldn't have to do that for their whole life. And they wouldn't even have to do that for decades. Either they would do it for years or sometimes even just one year, or sometimes it would be this intense, which would be like seven to ten hours a day, and that would be called halwa, or later called chilla, or four months. And a person would spend a few months like this. And when they spent a few months engaged in this extremely long, intense, long-duration zikr, that would bring them to that fine-tuning of the zikr. But then they would dispense with that. And they would only do it maybe for half an hour, one hour a day for the rest of their lives. Right? And that was another regimen. That was another path. Now what happened was that at the time of Shah Baha'u'llah Naqshiban Bukhayra, it was his feeling that Allah knows best. Right? None of these the Arab You know, they had an understanding about the society and the ummah, state of the ummah around them that uh, is definitely highly accurate, but doesn't have to be taken as a point of aqidah for anybody, right? Now, his feeling at that time was that it was getting harder for people to sustain Zikr al-Sani for years and decades. So he started making dot on the small tala for an easier path or a shorter path. It doesn't necessarily mean better, right? Uh, the best path is the one that brings you the goal. And in that, all these different methods are equal theoretically, Practically, for different people, a different method might work better. But the way he conceived of it is very important, because that was something I wanted to explain to them. But he conceived of it, and that's why he would say these things that, you know, in the Rajin Nahayaf, in Bidaya, and that, you know, what others get at the end, we get at the beginning. But he meant that what others get through a slow, sustained effort over one or two decades, or, you know, over, over a few years, we get that in a few months, that would be more appropriate to say a few years or a few months, but because we don't do it slowly, and we don't do it long-term, we do it intensely short-term. You find that as a perfect example in education. You can find the same thing. I'll give you a perfect example of language learning. So there's, you know, universities, for example, study Arabic. So one is a year-long sequence, and then there's an eight-week summer intensive, 
And the notion is that eight-week summer intensive, you learn the same amount of Arabic that you learn the 32-week year-long sequence. Why? Because you get it in an intensive way. You just spend more time in it. That's it. Neither way is better than the other, absolutely. And you will find that there's some learners, some students who say, look, I can't do the intensive method. Because it's better for you to register in the normal academic year, take Arabic 1 in the fall semester, and take Arabic 2 in the spring semester. There are others who say, look, that doesn't work for me. I'm doing Arabic, but meanwhile, I'm doing all these other subjects. I, you know, I just, I can't, I can't grasp the Arabic that well. I need to do it more intensely. You should register for the eight-week summer intensive, where day and night you do nothing other than Arabic. So in a similar way, you can understand was the Zikr Lisani, Zikr Talbi, right? Now, the thing was, however, that Zikr Talbi wasn't meant to be like that. And that's why the Sinanis is classically there was this emphasis on the Sheikh, because the Sheikh was actually your coach for that intensive four months, or that X number of months, etc., where you would drown deeply in that Zikr. And then you would come out of it, and then you would be put on a different regimen of Zikr, which was much lighter, which was pain, and continue to do for the rest of your life. And at that moment, then, even the intense need of the Sheikh wasn't so much, because the Sheikh was with the Sheikh of Khalwa and the Sheikh of Jilla. All right? Now, uh, and then, then there wasn't any real difference between Naqshim and other in terms of the centrality of the Sheikh to the great relationship. Today, says that, okay, no, what I will do is I will take the path of the Kirkhamdi, but I won't do it in the way it was conceived as a more intensive thing. I will do it uh, year-round. Okay, first says, okay, I'm not going to do the Arabic in the summer. I'm going to do the summer intensive Arabic over three, two weeks. So I think we'll be basically doing the same thing as the people who did the three-week course. They'll be there, yes, if we're doing the Kirkhamdi, they're doing the Kirkhamdi, but then there's no question of, okay, which gets you to what goal better, faster, quicker, or deeper. It's the same path. And the vast majority of people who are following the path of the Kirkhamdi have ended up on that position that is just uh, you know, sustained over a number of years but in less intense amounts. And that's perfectly fine also, right? And I just use this as an example uh, to illustrate the concept of the saying is that there's a universal teaching, but there may be specific methods for particular people. And it's also not necessary that every person will necessarily be able to identify which is the clinical best method for me. For many people, both methods will be equally fine. For many people, it depends on the teacher, right? Some Arabic teachers are better, I'll go for some Arabic. If I'm teaching year-long sequences better, I'll go for that, all right? The key thing is to keep your eye on the goal. And that's really where the Quran and Sunnah aspect of the soul comes in. Because the goal always has to be firmly mentioned in Quran and Sunnah. The method doesn't always have to be there. You'll find nothing in Zikr that different societies that may not even mention Hadith, but the goal has to be there. And the goal has to be mentioned in the Quran and Hadith. And the second thing is that the method must be done for the goal and for no other reason, because the method has no value other than the goal. So the method is not meant to create a personality, right? So, oh, you know, this is my personality. I like to do the Zikr five hours a day. No, no, this, not, this doesn't. You weren't taught this to make it your personality. You weren't taught this to make it your habit. You were taught this for a goal. All right? In some, uh, in, in, in sort of, I've run out of time here, but there were actually some more things I wanted to say. So, inshallah, in, in, in a future program, I will talk more about this. But just to recap uh, what I mentioned today was uh, the importance of the Zikr. 
and I related the Zikr to the Prophet And sometimes, and another thing I wanted to talk more about was that you have to be attached to your Zikr and so much so that it estranges you even from a life of teaching the inner service of the um, because the ultimate thing really is a person's uh, heartfelt connection and attachment to Allah And then another thing to talk about in the future talk, inshallah, is how these two things ultimately merge with the people of the film called Baqa. And that was the thicker and rubbed in Talaq means the connection with Allah Ta'ala, pure connection with Allah, merged with pure Dawah and pure Khidmah. And that's really the path of Sunnah. So to have pure zikr on the one hand, connecting yourself to Allah Ta'ala being completely khalib from the world, and on the other hand, being completely, absolutely engaged in the world, but purely for dawah and khidmah. So may Allah Ta'ala enable us to get this pure zikr, pure dawah, pure khidmah through any of the means and methods and paths that are pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. And may Allah Ta'ala protect us from falling into all delusions and all deceptions and all self-delusions. And may Allah Ta'ala keep us all in the path of humility and servitude and slavehood. Wa akhirin da'wana. And alhamdulillahi. And then on in.